Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. Today we have Kayleen Johnson, our next guest on the Next Generation Movement. Kayleen, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we have beautiful Paris, my co-host, joining us from sunny or maybe not Melbourne, Victoria. Definitely not. Thank you very much. Hey, team. So (laughs) really excited to have you on, Kayleen. And it was something that the moment I met you during the triple sevens, I knew that we were going to have to do this. Um, It was something that I kind of waited to bring up with you towards the end of the journey, just so, you know, you and I could join or I guess build a little bit more rapport because it is, um, it is a, uh, it it can be sometimes a nerve wracking thing to do to, to talk on camera. Sometimes it's a bit harder to talk on camera than in person. And uh, I know you have no problem doing that. So, um, (laughs) So really super excited to have you. On the show and today really what we want to do is dive into your story your personal journey uh brave hearts obviously um the the cause the challenges the struggles the journey of brave hearts and really unpack uh your why i suppose and, and why this movement is just so important not only to you but your family who i've had the pleasure of also meeting your dad who's become my buddy and your mom as well throughout the journey so welcome to the next gen movement kayleen Thanks for having me. You're welcome. (laughs) So I guess I'll just I'll just kick us off. Um, Many many people in the community, um, especially within the LinkedIn community, know that I just done the triple seven run, the seven marathons, seven days in seven states, and um, many people know that it has been for a charitable cause, but they really don't know much about Bravehearts. And that was a big piece of uh, the intention of having this conversation today. So, Pauline, um what is Bravehearts and how did it start? So, Bravehearts is a charity that's dedicated like only for the issue of child sexual assault um, and exploitation. That's what we deal with. Um, it started 23, four years ago now. <clears throat> I forgot how old I was. I just had a birthday. Um, <laughs> um, because when, so I was sexually assaulted when I was a child by my dad's dad and my grandfather. Um, and when I disclosed, we were in New Zealand on a holiday. Um, by the time we came back to Australia, which was not long, um, my mum had already been on the phone looking for places to call and, and, you know, if your child comes to you and says, you know, Poppy's been hurting me, you, as a parent, you want to know what to do. Mm. So you're meant to be able to, and now you can, thankfully, pick up the phone and say, oh, my gosh, my child just said this. What do I do? What's my next step? And there was no organisations there that dealt um, specifically with the issue. In fact, none of them dealt with it really at all. Um, I remember very clearly she had this big, she was running in the um, Senate election at the time. And so she had those really big ballot papers that are, you know, a mile and a half long. And on the back of that, she would write um, all of the places that she'd called and there'd be arrows leading from one to another. And essentially what that was, was she would ring one, find someone on the internet or find someone in the white pages, ring them. 
they would refer her to someone else. So she'd write that number down so there'd be an error. And then they, and at the end of the day, everybody was just referring back to new people. Nobody actually was in a position to help. Um, so thankfully, our family did get support. I was lucky enough that my parents could afford private um, counselling for us, which is a $110 a session and it was in Brisbane, which was an hour away from where we lived. Um, but even at the time, 23, four years ago, it was illegal for my parents to come out and say that they were the parents of a child sexually assaulted. So they couldn't even technically say why they wanted to talk about the issue. Um, of course, you've met my mum, you know what she's like, she did it anyway, but she could have technically been um, charged for that or maybe gone to jail, I don't really know how hard they, they took those laws, but she did get letters and, and you know people saying you can't say that, that's illegal, which is in itself just ridiculous. So 24 years ago, there was nothing around that supported families or children that were going through this. It just was not talked about. It was not an issue anyone wanted to have anything to do with. Why do you think it, what was the justification of it being illegal, Kayleen? Why was it illegal? Um, there was a theory at the time that by, um, even if they didn't name me, but by saying my child's been sexually assaulted, that the theory was that I would be easier prey, I guess because I've already been assaulted once. Why not? You know, it's, it, it's, it's, the theory was that if you've been assaulted once, you'll get assaulted. You're, you're easier to, you're, you're at more risk of being assaulted again, essentially. Like a ridiculous advertisement. Right. Yeah. What <laughs> so a that was the theory. Um, but again, like it, it's ridiculous now because we know, yeah. but, um, and it doesn't, kind of take away from the shocking fact that it was illegal for my parents to say that, not even use pictures of me, not even, and there's different laws now, which are again, um, you know, there's a bit of red tape of, around it, but it was like, so now if, unless, if you're under the age of 16, unless your case has been convicted, you can't publicly say that you've been, like you, you can't name your offender basically, because that would then go into um, defamation essentially. Mm. But that's a whole other thing that I'm not up on. But even with that one theory that they were saying, if a parent comes out and says, my child has been sexually assaulted, that is easier prey, I guess. Um, we know better. I think they were trying to do the right thing. Um, I don't think it was, I don't know, maybe I got rose-coloured glasses, but I really try to believe that it wasn't because people were sitting up there going, well, we'll just stop everyone from doing everything. I think at the time they thought, Perhaps it was the right thing to do, um, but it's it's no longer the case now. It's not illegal anymore. So, that's it. but it, yeah, I guess it kind of comes from that place of fear, right? When you don't, when it's not talked about, and you don't know what to do, then people kind of go into lockdown and make decisions that they may think are in the best interest of everyone, but in actual fact, is probably making it a lot worse. Would you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's not a topic that is. Um, uh, not fun, no no topic around, you know, human rights or human welfare is fun, but it's not something that I guess is easily digestible. Mm. I mean, RJ mentioned before he gets asked to donate to cancer and stuff all the time. Cancer is a horrible disease, but it's nobody's fault. 
Yeah. Like, you can't sit there and go, oh, my really close family member gave this person cancer and I didn't see it coming. It's a horrible thing that happens out of the blue. You know, it, there's no real explanation for it. Um, this is so um, taboo, I think, because mm. one, it's most of the time it's done by somebody, like the perpetrator is someone known and loved to the family or a family member themselves. And it's something that if you're a parent, you will instantly blame yourself or get that guilt. How did I not see this? Why is this person in my life? Why did I marry them? Why did we let them go for sleepovers mm. when I took them to that swimming school or that tennis school or whatever? How did I not know that coach was weird? Like, yeah, there, there's a blame element of that that people don't want to feel, understandably. Um, and I also think I have a theory too. I'm not sure how true it is, but it's like when people drive past car accidents, for example, everybody stops to look. Yeah. People, even though they go, oh, that was awful, they want to see what it is that they're not meant to be seeing. Yeah. Um, and when you talk about um, anything with kids, so again, you say kids with cancer, my child had leukemia. You instantly picture, well, I do anyway, I call that, that horrible image of that yeah. poor child in a bed with no hair and the, the oxygen tubes and it's awful because people, as humans, I think we need to we need to see what it is. We can't just trust, we need to see. So when you say a kid's been sexually assaulted, what do you like nobody wants to picture that? Everyone just goes, Oh yeah. no. And it's easier to and fair, nobody wants to picture it. But it's easier to just go, Nope, not dealing with that, that's too hard, on to the next issue. Yeah. So perhaps it's a little bit of self-preservation. I don't know, but it's yeah. it does make it difficult. Yeah. Do you think it's um, become not necessarily um, easier, but do you think with more frequent conversation and initiatives like you're doing with Brave Hearts and everything like that, it makes it um, a little less boundary to talk about issues like that? And, you know, the more you talk about something, the less um, hesitant people can become about having that conversation. It's almost like, you know, wearing down that barrier of this is really uncomfortable to I'm um, becoming more informed to now I have some tools. Do you think that it's become better and better, you know, over the last 20 years of your life since you've been doing it? Absolutely. I mean, Kate Bravehearts is now not the only organisation that deals with sexual assault. We are still the only ones that deal with it exclusively and we are the original. Um, but there's plenty of other, um, you know, organisations out there that are providing government and non-government that are providing you know, even just like counselling for, for people, that just wasn't available. So yeah. it's now you can get counselling sessions on, on you, using your Medicare rebate, you can get, um, you know, sessions around mental health care plans. There's all these things that at a very base level weren't available medically for people that, that are now through a wide range of services. There's so much more information available. I mean, people are talking about it. We had a Royal Commission recently that obviously made the entire country speak about this issue. Um, and I think you're right. The more people talk about it, the less uncomfortable it becomes. Um, and the focus, I think, really needs to be on too, which will help, I guess, people become comfortable talking about it, is it's not what we're trying to talk about is not the horrible things that did happen. I mean, yes, that happened. And those are conversations that need to happen, of course. But publicly what we want to talk about, <clears throat> again, um, 
to use the cancer thing. You don't say, well, this child had, like, you, you go out there and say, we want money for a cure. We want to look for this. So for us, we're going out there and saying, we want to talk about it because we want to help you educate your children to prevent this issue. Mm. We want to make sure that mm. it's not about scaring people about what could happen. It's about making sure that they have the tools to prevent that so that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Kayleen, one of the things that you, you just talked about was um, the the family dynamic. And I spent a bit of time with your dad through the journey. And what struck me was the first night of the 777, how open he was about how it all happened and, you know, what was going through his head and, and how complex it was. Cause he said to me that his dad, your poppy was like one of the best blokes in the world mm. in terms of just being a great dude. And, and then finding out that he had, you know, perpetuated a lot of this throughout his life. And he seemed, your dad seemed to really come to terms with what happened, but I know under the bonnet and through the years, there would have probably been a lot of uh, turmoil and, and hardship and, and, and struggling. And um, I remember even on the award night, the last night of the, the last run, when your dad gave that speech, I could just tell um, even the way that your mom was looking at him, that there was a lot of healing in it for him as mm -hmm. well because uh, uh, Paris Kayleen's dad impressively ran all the the seven marathons with us and he's not a runner this is like a you know 50 something year old dude that doesn't like to run you know what I'm saying but um I guess the, the question I have is at the time when this this happened and obviously there wasn't a lot of support services how does how does how did your family unit cope and how do the family units cope or not cope that you guys come across with within your organization? Um, again, I mean, so if I go back to me being seven, I thought everything was fine and dandy um, because I was seven and my parents did a really great job of sheltering me from that. Yeah. Um, I've since learned that behind the scenes, mum had written a letter to the entire family to let them know what had happened um to our Thai family in New Zealand that did create a large divide in our family and extended family um, of people that were essentially accusing our family and this is not just myself this was my auntie so my dad's sister mm. um her daughter um some cousins second cousins their kids like it's mm. it, there was a lot of girls and women in our family that were um abused by this man mm. so you had on one side of the fence the people that knew it was true or believed us mm. if they had never had any um, abuse themselves but they believed us and then you had on the other side of the fence two camps there was one who believed that we were lying um, and that we're just doing something horrible for fun and then you had the other side of the camp that probably believed us didn't really want to talk about it too much but hoped we just sweep it under the rug and kind of my grand my grandma was one of those on that side of the family and she had a conversation with my parents that said, I wish you could have just could have just dealt with it as a family were her words. So she yeah wasn't really supportive of, of the whole process um, of us disclosing or um, 
going to police and, and taking that further. He went to court. There was a conviction. He was jailed. And she, I think, well, I know she never never wanted that. I think she would have just preferred we never even went to the police and, mm. you know, just probably wished I never said anything, to be honest. Um, so there's that aspect. Um, when you come home to another country too, there was all the, the aspect of their friends and having to explain all of that. Mum and dad will openly tell everyone now that there was quite a rocky patch in their marriage where they were, mm. um, I'd say, on the verge of divorce, mm. um, which if you see them now is so strange because they are disgustingly in love. Like everybody looks at them and goes, oh, we want that. So to mm. think that they were that bad um, is uh, a, a bit scary. My dad did um, suffer with some mental health issues at the time. Uh, for, for quite some years, so mum was helping him through that. Um, so there's a lot. It kind of implodes your family. It's not. It really is a ripple effect. Like the disclosure yeah. itself is is just the start, and the further back you go, the bigger the ripples go. Like it's just. It's not as simple as child discloses, family support, mm-hmm. life goes on. Like it's it's never that simple. Um, you see it all the time, families falling apart, families not um, dealing with it very well together. There was an instance actually recently where um, a family's child um, had been accused of being complicit essentially in, in sexual assault of another and the parents of that child, one firmly was like, nope, that's not the case and the other one, actually believes that that is the case so even just within that dynamic Mm. there's a lot that they have to talk about themselves and get through their own you know it's not it's really not simple um but it's all again it's it's about having the right people to talk to and the right tools and the right services available to you and your family to make sure that you can navigate whatever's coming your way like it's it's not um it's not something you'd want anyone to ever go through, but with the right support, it definitely makes it easier. Mm. Yeah, it's so horrible. The fact that, you know, do you think, you know, we talked about earlier with cancer and how, you know, you can visualise or certain things you can actually visualise. Do you think because it is um, so removed from our psyche in terms of something that we can categorise and pull to the mind, that it makes it even more difficult, as you're saying, with family members to be able to rationalise, I saw that happen or I can see that happening and therefore I can, you know, I'm more likely to say it is happening or, you know. I think it's the trust thing. So perpetrators get away with it because they are people you never expect. And like RJ mentioned before with, you know, Dad saying, Aside from this, he was the perfect guy. And he was. He was funny. He was a hard worker. He was kind. He'd help out at, you know, all of, he was always a rugby coach. He was, you know, Santa's at Christmas. Anybody needed a hand moving, he was the first guy you asked. Like, he was the guy in town. Everybody loved him. Yeah. Um, and it's all, it's the same in every, every story I've heard. You know, I've never heard somebody go, hmm, kind of thought they were a bit dodgy, but I left my kids with them anyway. Like, yeah, you, know, you, you, never, you never hear that. But they're always the people you don't expect. They're always the, you know, we had swimming coaches recently and we've had, you know, dance teachers and school teachers. Kaylee, do you think they're purposely deceitful or do you think that 
they're just good blokes in other areas of their life or good women in other, or do you think they're laying traps by being deceitful purposefully? My personal opinion, mm. oh, see, I don't, again, this, this gets very, very confusing. I think they are master manipulators. I think that they, I, I'd say that there are elements of that's just who they are as far as being helpful because I don't think you would turn that on. But at the same time, they know exactly what they're doing. So it's never an excuse. You can yeah. be a nice person and not abuse a child. Like you don't have to be a nice person just because you want to do that. So I think they definitely are master manipulators. They know how to gain people's trust and quite quickly. Um, and they know how to make you feel safe around them. That's what they do. Um, and I'd say they're very good at, well, I know that they're very good at hiding that. So you can't, I don't know if they do it because of that. Oh, that's far too in-depth for, for my brain, but they are always master. They, they just are. They know how to make people feel trusted. I mean, they're, sometimes if you talk about it in a way of occupation, they're generally in an occupation where you would trust them just by default. So like your yeah. kids to school or you send your kids to, you know, a tutor or a swimming coach or whatever. You've got to do scouts, girl guides, whatever. Just by default, you assume this person is trustworthy. But then because they are who they are, they also have to prove to you even if we don't realise it, that they're a, a safe person to be around. Like even if you were sending your kid to, I don't know, the library to read with a group every whatever and the person running that library reading class is a real weirdo, you just got a gut feeling about them, you wouldn't keep sending your kid. You'd find a different library or find a different extra, you'd do something different. So they have to then, even though their job, I guess, is by default, mm makes them safe they have to still yeah. be safe to the parents because at the end of the day it's your decision mm. um but even outside of that in your personal life like every again nobody i've not come across anybody that went oh, i married them but i thought i should you know like it yeah. just it never happens they're always and that brings to i think part of the reason why people don't want to think about it because it's always the person you never expected and that's why it makes it so hard. So if a kid, and, and, and it's a child saying something, so a child comes to you and goes, you know, Dad, Mum, this happened to me, blah, blah, did this. You know, if your kid came to you and said, oh, I stole a newspaper from Uncle Harry next door, you'd be like, okay, I believe you. Bad, I believe you. But if somebody comes to you and says, this happened to me, mm. you want to believe your kid, but in order to believe your child and know that they are telling the truth, you have to believe that this it's other person scary. who you love, trust, and otherwise has done something so heinous to your child. Mm. And that right there is... The dissonance, cognitive dissonance, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah it's, an, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon. And um, it, it, it's a timely conversation. I know that, you know, people watching mm. the news would have read about um, the financier, the billionaire dude who committed yeah. suicide in, in prison. And a lot of people think these stories are fantastic in kind of storybook novel fictitious but it is happening i mean it's it's crazy when you think of 
the people in power and uh, with you know the, the kind of money and reach and resources they have, and they're operating on such an evil level. Mm. Uh, it's quite mm. extraordinary. Mm. Well, I mean, the thing is, I'm. It's. I think it's not. I don't think it's great that he took his life. I think that's the coward's way out. And he, there's so many people left behind now that, you know, the victims and survivors of all of his predatory ways, they're never going to get what they want, which mm. is not fair. Um, they're never going to get their day in court. They won't see proper justice. They just, you know, I think the fact that he topped himself is, in itself is the biggest confession of all time. Yeah. But that's not enough, and I understand that. You want, you want your opportunity to tell your story and to have your voice heard and to have people say, yes, you are right and you are. You've done wrong. And they won't get that. Um, which I feel for them mm. a lot. Um, I just, yeah, I forgot what I was saying. I just got totally taken away by how awful that would be for them. I mean, truly, they're sitting around. They've had to go through horrible, all this stuff with him already. They finally got the courage to say something. People believed him enough to put him in jail to wait for trial, and now he's not. He's just gone. I mean, how awful. How awful. But the things that perpetrators say to kids to keep them quiet, that's the other thing people say all the time. Why didn't you say something sooner? Why are you waiting till now? You have to remember, people really have to remember that when this is happening, these these kids are, are kids. Like the average age of a disclosure is seven years old. That's a disclosure. That means that they've probably already been sexually assaulted for years prior to that. So and their children and the things that these children are saying are not things that they're learning from Peppa Pig like yeah kids that are saying this stuff they're not lying they're not making it up I don't know where else they would some of the things that I've heard um you wouldn't kids kids just don't make that up they just they just can't make that up so and the way that perpetrators get them to stay silent is by threatening them and because everybody else loves them. So in my case, for example, obviously it was my granddad. So my whole family and everybody loved loved him. He was, um, like Dad said, he was the, the model citizen, model husband, the model father. Um, and so as a seven-year-old, you look around and you just, and all the other, and take away the sexual assault stuff, there was, there was fun things that they would do, you know. Um, so you take away all of that and you go, well, as a seven-year-old, I want all of that fun stuff to still be around. Mm. I just don't want that. But then they tell you things that you believe because, again, they're a trusted adult or they're a family member or they're someone that you love and you, you trust. So they tell you that, um, in my case, for example, if I told anyone my parents would not love me anymore and they'd send me on a plane to a different country because, um, obviously, we'd lived in Australia, but they were in New Zealand, so we flew between the two. Um, so I would go put on a plane and be left elsewhere. Um, or the other one was that they would send me home, but nobody would be there when I got there. Um, you know, nobody would believe me. I'd be in lots of trouble. Um, I'd never see my friends again. I'd never see my family again. All these horrible things that if you're seven years old or younger, you really have no choice to believe because you don't know. You just simply don't know anything different. Mm. So. 
you know, our, our job as adults with kids is to, to raise them and to give them, you know, they're literally sponges. They feed off everything that we, we give them. So if somebody's feeding you lies, you believe it because you don't know any different. Mm-hmm. So when people are, when children are disclosing and adults don't believe them, I really struggle with that because I don't, it's so difficult for a kid to say something, first of all, to pull yeah. themselves out of that at seven, eight, nine, ten, like even 16, it's a big thing. Like, you know, at 16, everybody thinks they're all grown up, but you do. I look back to when I was 16 and I was like, what? Like, you don't know who you are or what you're doing, so you're just figuring it all out. So, to say anything at any time, and then, you know, I meet adult survivors who haven't said anything until much later in life, like sometimes in their 40s or 50s. And that in itself is difficult because then you've, everybody goes, well, why didn't you say something years ago? And they, you know, it's it's such an awful thing to disclose. Um, goes back to the ripple effect thing that we were saying before. Once you once you throw that stone, there's mm. so much that essentially you have to um, digest and process and work through and do not just in your own self, but with the people around you. So, hmm. I um, one of the things. Uh, one of the facts, and I suppose, um, not facts, but one of the, the things that I did recognize about you, Kayleen, through the 777 journey was that you have now become one of those rare people that is walking purpose, like you're fully integrated in regards to what you do. Ironically, we generally achieve that level of integration through trauma. Um, <laughs> And and uh, and for whatever reason, fate has dis- bestowed this upon yourself. Now you've got such a deep drive and purpose. And I want to know how has Bravehearts helped you heal, as well as the family, and and how what's your what's your personal perspective on Bravehearts? What does it mean to you as an individual? Um, I think like for me it's um I don't ever want to do anything different like I will spend the rest of my life making sure that I'm doing whatever I can and to make sure that my big passion is education in kids I mean brave hearts is does so much and I'll never know it all. I mean, we've got criminologists that work for us, like doctors, whatever, all these people that work for us that are just so knowledgeable and passionate and driven in their own areas. Um, mine is education. Like I just really want people to talk about this and to educate themselves and to educate their kids. That is probably a little bit of, um like that healing that you mentioned for me like I feel like if if and I do openly say when I talk about my story I consider myself lucky um because uh not you know what happened happened and my story is um you know uh, survivors will have their own takes on what happened to them their own takes but like um everybody's story is different i guess is what i'm trying to say there's no story of child sexual assault that is exactly the same mm-hmm. um but when i disclosed i had a, an amazing dad who handled it 
terrifically. Um, my mom is very passionate about, was very vocal in letting me know that it wasn't my fault and that, you know, I was in a family that could afford to provide me with great um, mental health care at the time. Um, and I had, from what I knew at a seven-year-old, the rest of my family and friends wrapped these big warm hugs around me and I was safe. So I feel lucky. But not every child has that. Every person, not every person has that. Everybody's experiences are different. Some people come out and disclose and they lose their entire families. Like, I really am so passionate at making sure that people are educated around this and that children are educated and empowered to protect themselves because if we're all following all of those steps, if children are educated and empowered to protect themselves and they come out and, and through our education show as well, we teach kids to say something if they feel unsafe or unsure. So we're not waiting for people to perpetrate against them before we say something. Trying to teach children that they have the right, if they feel unsafe or unsure about anything, this show is amazing, it covers a wide range of um, the skill, like we've had children report back to us about bullying or um, my favourite actually, just deviate for a second, was a child who came up after the show and was like, can I talk to you? I'm like, yes, I want to tell you something. Okay, what's wrong? You know, thank you for telling me. Oh, my mum and dad had a fight last night. Oh, gosh, okay, okay, what, what did they fight about? Oh, dad forgot to bring the milk home on the way home from work, basically. It was just... <laughs> But this kid, like, and for us, I go, oh, my gosh. But for this kid, his parents' fighting was his world. Like, yeah. he, that was <clears throat> the most awful thing that happened to him. But the fact that after seeing the Ditto show, he felt safe enough and empowered enough to tell somebody that what happened made him feel uncomfortable, Yeah, that is proof in itself that, that the messages work. So if we can educate kids to talk and to use their language and to understand their bodies and talk to safe adults to help them through that then we can oh, stop this before it even happens mm. and if you if your parents and you're educated and you're learning what you need to learn then you can better protect your kids if you i was talking to somebody the other day and i used swimming as an example so we teach our kids to swim because we don't want them to drown right we want them to feel safe around water so if they're ever in a situation they know how to swim when you're teaching a child how to swim, you don't say, I'm going to teach you how to swim because if you don't learn, when you get into the water, this will happen and go through the horrible stages of what it would be like to drown. You just don't do that. You're just going, I'm going to teach you to swim so that you can be in that pool and be safe. Mm. It's really that mm. simple, right? So why do we feel like we need to teach kids about child sexual assault to protect them from it? But we yeah. don't. As parents, you need to be educated. And as kids, they just need the really simple messaging which is if you ever don't feel safe about anything, run and tell someone you can trust. Mm. And that trusted adult will be different in every child's life, but that's the messages we need to teach them. If they don't feel safe, tell someone. Mm. Mm. I think well, I missed the beginning point. I just want to... <laughs> no, no, no. One of the things also, though, I, I wanted to talk to you about was Bravehearts... You, you, you know, you guys are there to primarily address the education and post uh, trauma, I suppose, of what happens when a child is sexually assaulted. I want to focus the conversation in a different direction. And I know, Kayleen, I think we talked about this on the run 
when we were doing the triple sevens around more progressive countries, primarily I think in, in, in Holland, in, in some countries in Europe that are proactive in actually accepting that some people have desires to harm children mm. and actually proactive education. So Paris, this is a phenomenon that we don't have in mm. probably main, in, in, in most, um, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, Western societies such as the U.S. and, 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 uh, and I, w- I would say even Eastern societies, but there are some progressive uh, countries that have models where they're actually, you can go and say, look, I'm having thoughts about harming or sexually abusing children. What's your thoughts on that? I think as a country, we're a very long way from anywhere like that. Um, I know they have a really great program, a girl that works with us, um, used to work with us, has moved to Germany. Her husband got a job there. And over there, they have a um, program that is exactly that. It literally centers around people who have um, thoughts of, of actually harming a child. And they go in there for therapy and work through that. Um, I'm not 100% sure of the statistics around like the outcomes of those programs. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it is th- it's thoughts that people have, otherwise we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. So um, I think it's I think it's worth looking at. Working with offenders really um, it interests me in the way that I would like to have a better understanding of what makes them tick. I don't think it's as simple to say you can't, um, you know, I watched a, for example, I watched a documentary. It's an old one that Louis Thoreau did. Mm. And went into the prison systems in America. Mm-hmm. And inter- I remember that one. Yep. Yeah. And interviewed all the different um, perpetrators in there. And the variety of perpetrators that are in there um, is, is mind boggling. And it, it goes to show that they're not all the same. I mean, there was one individual in there who stuck with me who, um, chose to chemically castrate himself because he thought that might stop his thoughts of harming children and it was a step for him to be released and once that happened he was like I still I don't want to be in the public I'm not safe so he knew that he was a danger to society Mm. and knew that it was wrong but also knew that if he was released he wouldn't be able to stop himself I don't know the um like the psychiatry of that. I don't know how that works in a person. I, I don't, I would love to get a little bit more into who they are. There are other people there who just, one man had a picture of um, some young boys doing ballet, I think it was, yeah. on his wall. And yeah. he couldn't see mm. um, the particular, because like the pose that the young boys were in, I think they were stretching or something. The therapist looked at that and said, oh, that could be, um, seen as quite sexual but he couldn't understand he's like they're just boys dancing like Mm. so there's 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 not one type of perpetrator you can't look at one person that you know that is a perpetrator and go well they're all the same because they're not um so studies like in those countries that you mentioned um i guess would have the information that comes out of that would be really really interesting Mm even on a very base level, like who is a perpetrator. But um, I think ways on understanding better if we can 
if they can be managed or if they can, you know, is it is what it is? Is it a mental health issue? Is it a, like, what is it? Um, don't want to throw it in with mental health issues. That is, but do you know what I mean? Like, is it something that can be, can be um, worked or treated or is it, I, I don't, I don't know. The it's answer. own level of trauma to a certain extent. Exactly. Um, you know, there was a theory around that it's a bit monkey see, monkey do. Like people, if you've been sexually assaulted, then you'll be a perpetrator, which is just not the truth at all. Um, so I would like to, yeah, I would like to understand more what, why people find um, that as their sexual gratification. Like what is it about, what, what makes that person, what happens in their brain that that is, what they find sexually attractive. Um, I would like to kind of know more about that. And maybe that links back to what you've seen before, RJ, about like the healing. Maybe that'll, that's, maybe I'm so interested in it because I want to know, I'm trying to find a reason why for myself. Like why, why did you do, you know? Um, but I think, yeah, overall, um, I, I think we're not, we're nowhere near that as a country. We don't even really want to talk about it yet. Well, we have to first accept yes. that it's happening and yeah. we have to first be willing to have these conversations before we start to go into, well, actually, what's the psychology and makeup of the perpetrator? And I think some of these countries are able to be dispassionate, which mm. is probably required sometimes. Yes. Able to kind of, you have to be dispassionate about tough subjects sometimes as a society to be able to approach it. Yeah, mm. I think so. And I mean, we're not like even a few years ago, there was a, a perpetrator released on, on bail and people were picketing outside his house and you know, he moved and then they picketed again and he moved and they picketed and he ended up killing himself. I mean, I don't think we're at a point if that's what we need, that dispassion. We're not there yet as a country to that if we set up a building and said hey if you're having sexual thoughts about kids come here could you imagine mm. yeah the backlash the front of that yeah so we, we, I just don't think we're there yet um, what we are really focused on as an organization though is building a different model to how we interview children and how we um, convict perpetrators and that's we work very closely with a child advocacy centre in Dallas in the U, uh, US. And they, um, overall, the child uh, conviction rates for perpetrations against children in all forms, not just sexual assault, but child-related offences is 97% in the US. And in Australia, we're less than 10. So we have a long way to go in this country with how we deal with offences against children. And how that is, that information is, how people make a disclosure, a disclosure and how that information is collected and how do we do it in a way that makes children feel comfortable sharing that information and not re-traumatising them in the process. Um, at a very base level, they don't, they're, over there they're not interviewed by police officers, so they have a building which is called Child Advocacy Centre and it has absolutely everything in it. It's got counselling rooms, it's got... Um, Think it's got like a back entry way to if you if there's a perpetrator so if a child comes in and says oh my mum did it she's then they'll take mum out the back mm -hmm. um, in housed in that center is um their own police squad i guess like that if there's ever a phone call in their county that says this is a child related matter 
that police squad, no matter what it is, will go out and deal with it. So the regular police teams, stations, squads, whatever they are, the regular police people will deal with other things, so car accidents or, mm. you know, thefts, stealing, shootings, domestic violence, whatever, they deal with all of those things. Um, and these team deals specifically with child-related offences, incidences where there's children involved. Those children will come back. Um, if they're going to make a disclosure, they won't be interviewed by police. They get interviewed by a professionally trained therapist. Um, and it's in a room and I've seen um, an example of one of these interviews and the interviewer built rapport with this girl in the most quickest, like so quickly, we, we walked into the room and she said, hi, my name is, and the little girl was like, mm. and within five minutes she's drawing with her, talking about how her day was, like, you know, making jokes and they're laughing about their favourite colours and pets and it, it, it's the most beautiful thing to see and then she opens up and she talks about her um, herself being sexually assaulted to this person she met ten minutes ago. Um, this lady then leaves the room and in the other room watching the interview is everybody who needs to know about that. So they have like um, all of the, the lawyers, they have their versions of child safety, they have you know, their, their police, they have um, medical in the building as well. So if a child needs medical assistance, they can be seen then and there, they don't have to go to a hospital. Um, and the interviewer will go behind the glass essentially and say, what do you need to know? And each of these people for each of their teams will say, I need to know more about this incident, this incident, this, that. Can you please get further information based around what the child disclosed here? That person goes back, asks all that information, interview concludes, it's recorded. That's evidence done and done. So that interview is used in court rather than that child having to go up and... Yeah. And if, like... There's an Australian movie too called, it's called Don't Tell. And it's based around um, the, um, her name is Lyndall, is the, the character in the movie, but she's a real person as well. Um, and she was the, she disclosed that she was being sexually assaulted by a teacher at um, what was Toowoomba Prep years ago. So this was the very, this case in itself started Braveheart's calls for a Royal Commission into institutions. Um, and so she was being sexually assaulted by a teacher there um, and so were many other girls. The reason I bring it up is, one, she's an actually incredibly strong lady. She's amazing. But if anyone gets a chance to watch that movie, it is called, it's called Don't Tell, it's an Australian movie. The court scene in, in that movie is a direct transcript of her court scene, like of her, what happened to her in court. And the things that the defence teams will throw at her, like they were saying she wanted to be, um, um, they asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up and she told them and they said, don't you think that's a bit of a stretch? Your mum's a housewife and your sister's a receptionist. So, like, they were just putting her down at any stance that they could. They tried to imply that... Um, she made it all up because she missed her dad because she was at a boarding school. Um, but it's more than what they say. It's how they say it. They berate and they go. And her, it, what happened to her is not uncommon. They'll do it often. Um, you know, she was a little bit older, so perhaps she copped it a bit more than what a child would. But they will try and find ways to discredit kids. Like if kids say, 
it happened on a Wednesday and the sheets were green. Yeah. The perpetrator will go, well, I, you know, I wasn't even there on Wednesday and the sheets were on that bed of blue. And instead of going, okay, well, maybe the kid got it was the Thursday, like they don't, they look for what is wrong rather than what is right. So yeah. the system in Australia actively tries to discredit the child, it feels like, rather than proving what the child said is, is right and finding. So, and the way that they do it in America is just second to none. Um, so that is something that we, as an organisation, but also myself would really love to see in this country is a child advocacy centre model that is structured around supporting the child and the family and making sure that the process for them is not re-traumatising because that in itself is awful. So you already go through this horrible stuff, then you have to tell all these people you've never met before in a room where nobody else is allowed to be with police officers you've never met um, who are generally wearing their uniforms. And not that that's... not that the uniforms are off-putting or that those people are scary, but for a child to be stuck in a room with a uniformed police officer automatically is nerve-wracking in itself. Yeah. Um, some of these police do wonderful, a wonderful job talking to these kids, but they're uniformed officers. It's, it's already visually quite daunting. Yeah. Um, so just having this model is not saying that all of the police are doing it horribly. It's just saying this is a better way to do it and it helps yeah. them in the end. And, I mean, police officers already have to deal with so much stuff. I mean, I don't, police officers have been there for 30, 40 years. I don't know how they do it. They would see the absolute worst of the worst, not just of society, but, you know, gosh, murders, car accidents, like homicides. It's awful what they would see. And then to have them go to a case where there's children that have been sexually assaulted and then having to interview those kids and get those details. I mean, surely we have a mental health requirement to the police officers. Yeah, definitely. So, wow. sorry, I could rant for hours. No. <laughs> it's fascinating. And, I mean, you're so passionate. So it's so mm -hmm. um, beautiful to be able to latch on to that. And, I mean... For everyone that's kind of watching and listening, how, you know, it's one of those things that you always come to at the end, but how can they help, not only with Brave Hearts, but just in general? Is there kind of, um, not only through donating, but things, tips and tricks that they can do if they come across this in their lives? Like, how, what is your advice to everyone on, you know, something that they can take on board after this interview? Um, I think definitely just, just be aware and educate yourself. Um, Especially if you're a parent, jump on the Brave Hearts website. Um, there is a whole bunch of free downloadable information. There's an entire parent's guide there that's free to download. Um, it just helps you with language around talking to your kids. One of the things I talk to, dads in particular, because my dad used to say this to me, with absolute love and affection, if anyone ever hurt you, I'd kill them. Mm. And mm. it said with the most well-meaning like you know because if anyone ever hurt your kid you'd want to kill them except in my case the person hurting me was his dad so again that adds another layer unexpectedly which parents don't mean to add but what if the person hurting your child is someone they love and it's someone you love then you have to as a child you go well if I tell my dad this then my dad's going to kill that person and then that person's going to be dead and my dad's going to go to jail so I'm not going to say anything yeah. And they're the leaps that you make as, as children because keep in mind these, they're, they're children so they don't have the complete 
They can't process it like we can as adults. So even saying things like that is, you know, potentially sends the wrong message. Un you don't mean to, but it sometimes does. If your kid's completely harm-free, then lucky you and you've not sent any wrong message. But if there is something happening to your child, that message could further confuse them accidentally. Mm. So it's just about helping parents with what to say to their kids, teaching them the language. We don't encourage parents to or not to use anatomical names for, for genitalia. That's totally up to them. And even the police will tell you, if you call, for example, a vagina a orange, have an orange in front of me, call an orange. If a child can, if they say, this happened to my orange, can you please show me where your orange is? And the child can point to their vagina and they continuously use that, that's enough. You don't mean, it doesn't need to be called a vagina. So that argument that things need to be anatomical is not correct. So that's up to each individual family member and families to decide for themselves. But what is important is making sure your children are feeling safe and empowered over their own bodies, um, teaching them that if they ever feel unsafe or unsure and teaching those signs to their body. So, as a, again, as adults, we know, I use this analogy to women all the time, if you go out for dinner with some friends and you've got to go to the car and the car is the quick way is just down the dark alley or the longer way is around a lit road, you take the longer way because the dark alley feels a bit... You know what that feeling is. Kids don't know what that feeling is. They don't understand. They're, they're learning everything that we already know because they're children. So we have to remember that. So teaching them, the show teaches them that if they feel unsafe or unsure, they might get butterflies in their tummy or they might feel like they're stuck to the ground and they can't run away or all these feelings that we take for granted and we understand in our bodies that we go, or that person or that situation. We teach that to kids and then we encourage them to tell somebody that they trust if they feel unsafe or unsure. So that's what we're teaching kids. And then the parent pack teaches adults how to respond to that. Um, they might not come and tell you, fingers crossed, that they're being sexually assaulted. Maybe they tell you that they're being bullied at school or that they're, you know, falling behind in class because they don't understand what's happening. It could be, or, you know, maybe they don't, they feel sad you know, having to go to mum's house and leaving dad there or going to dad's house and leaving mum, you know. There could be a whole range of things that these kids are feeling that this language can open up and, and open up a discussion. So it's never going to be a bad thing to have this conversation with the kids. Um, that's If that's all people can do, if that's all they can afford to do or that's all they want to do, then just do that. Download the parent pack. Um, of course, we need donations i mean we're a charity we're not um we are receiving some assistance from the government um but nowhere near in relation to our peers in the industry and also what we need to continue i mean our counseling services are funded um but our education services our research services our lobbying our um you know all of that that's not a funded service primarily so we need to make money to do that um we yeah we need we need the support and nobody else we are the, in the sector we're the largest loudest organisation so we will you know it's everybody most people know who Hetty is for example she's always on the news she's always talking about we are the loudest organisation in the sector and to do that we need you know that comes with its benefits and its pitfalls and we need to yeah have some help to 
to continue what we do. Um, I think no matter where you are, if you can look into getting a ditto show in your school as well, um, that can never hurt. Um, that's from prep to year three. And uh, we also go to kindergartens as well, so we've got kids in kindy. Um, there's so much that people can do, but yeah, jump on the website. If you're a runner, do the triple seven. Hey, RJ. <laughs> yep. Loved it. But, I mean, yeah. You loved it? Oh, yeah. One of the best things I've ever done. Some of the relationships that we formed, extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yeah. I've um, done the event, like as organising it for four years before this or three years before this. Um, and so travelled as staff and travelling it as a runner was something completely, not something that I expected. I kind of thought I knew what I was getting in for because I'd done it, I'd travelled before, but it, um, yeah, so different. It's, it's, um, it's a week you can't really explain, but if you're a runner or you're not even, I mean, I'm not even a runner, just do it. Mm. Struggle <laughs> your way through. I did. Impressive. <laughs> Impressive, and and I'll be seeing you next month at the at the ball at the uh, the tuxedo. I've got a bow tie ready, so yes. uh, I'll be down there. So I'm looking forward to seeing all you guys. Absolutely, if people based in Brisbane come down, or even if you're not flying, it'll be fun. But um, we're having a Bravehearts ball on September seven um, in Brisbane, and that's in supporting White Balloon Day, and it's the um, magic of childhood is the theme. Yeah. So it's going to be absolutely incredible. We've had a few planning meetings for theming and, and um, entertainment and stuff, and it's going to be, I'm excited. I'm getting big princess dress for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Kayleen, thank you so much for your time, mate. I'm so, um, so happy we've had you. It's uh, been nice to catch up with you again and again. I can't wait till I see you next month. Uh, but, yeah, really grateful for your time today. And your honesty. No, oh, thanks. It's been, yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Kayleen. Really appreciate it. All Bye. right. Okay. You, you have a good one. You too. See ya. Bye.